0: Josh Marshall podcast with Kate Riga. We have a bunch of things we're going to talk about today, uh, mainly domestic politics. But before that, I want to I want to discuss briefly this this really kind of surreal thing that happened in Russia over the weekend with this mutiny. This I, I don't know whether to I, I kind of don't know whether to say Wagner or Wagner you know since it's Russian and I guess I don't know if they default to the to the to the German pronunciation or whatever but in any case uh a pretty wild stuff and I've and I've I've done a few posts about it so I just wanted to flag it uh but it's it's really quite shocking but you know there's a history of this. As well. Uh, It's one of the things that happens when um, countries get involved in major military involvements. Uh, Sometimes it ends up blowing back into their own state right? There's lots of, lots of examples of this in history. And uh, you could even say at at a very limited level, it happened in the United States during the Vietnam War. Uh, You had a sort of a rolling uh, domestic crisis from the late 1960s through the early 1970s. Uh, Some people even kind of class the Watergate scandal and Nixon's resignation as, as part of that General crisis. Although by the time that uh, Nixon resigned, or even by the time of Watergate, uh, the U.S. had had significantly um, had significant. They called it Vietnamization. Vietnamization, right? Had had significantly sort of reduced uh, U.S. involvement in 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 Vietnam. And in any case, uh, for all the the domestic tumult. Uh, that happened in the late 1960s and 1970, 1971, 1972, nothing like this. We didn't have any like general, you know, fly a a few brigades back to the United States and like march on Washington or something like that. Um, But the interesting thing is that there is a very big history of this, actually, in Russia. Uh, You know, uh, in 1905... After the uh, Russians had a very bad experience in a war with Japan, uh, they had a basically they they switched to a somewhat a constitutional monarchy. Uh, the monarchy had to give way on some of its absolutism, and then uh, the it was World War I that basically drove the collapse of the Russian state, the Russian imperial state, which. You know gave way to the ussr uh you can make a decent argument some argument that it was the uh russian the the soviet uh entanglement in afghanistan that helped uh not maybe cause but at least be the trigger of the of the collapse of of the soviet union in any case you know, both of these sides, it, it, if you were watching this in real time, it was very strange because it started almost as a joke. Like this guy says he's going to go to Moscow and it's like, people were wondering, is, is is he even serious? And then suddenly it seemed very serious. And at least internationally, there was some question of like, is this actually happening? Is this a coup attempt that may work? Uh, and then suddenly it was all called off just as it was happening, right? Like. The whole thing lasted less than a day. Um, And I think the general consensus is that it unfolded in a way that neither side really expected and that both sides had no way of really knowing what was going to come next. And so both had paradoxically a common interest in saying, let's step back. Let's, let's, let's draw back here and, and not uh, roll this, you know, Roll these dice the way uh, the way we seem to be doing, and since then Vladimir Putin has been trying to kind of puff up his chest and you know congratulate and reward the heroes who put down the coup, uh, the mutiny, while at the same time the people who did it are, are getting a pass. So it's a very weird and I think continues to be unstable and not done situation. Over in uh, over in Russia, and obviously that has tremendous implications for the ongoing war in Ukraine, which the U.S. is deeply involved with, although not a combatant. So just just keep an eye. That doesn't seem to be over. If you haven't been if you haven't been watching it closely, then uh, on the on the domestic side, we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court cases. I actually just did a post about this this morning because. Many, many people, and I'm one of them, is endlessly critical of the corruption of this court, the sort of uh, ideological corruption, in addition to a lot of venal corruption that we've seen later. And yet, kind of out of the blue, you keep having these like you know, quote unquote, surprise decisions, where it's like, wow, we thought this was this terrible thing was going to happen, and it's totally the reverse. And so, what's going on? I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that. My general theory is that. I think that two or three key members of the court have decided that they may have gone, they may have taken things a bit too far and a bit too far where uh, their continued power is in danger. Maybe not in this year or 2024, but if you are a Brent Kavanaugh or uh, Amy Barrett, You're thinking you're going to be there for 20, 30 years. So these things are important. So that's my general sense. Kate and I are going to, we're going to get into that. And then we're also going to talk about this Trump tape, which I'm sure you've heard about and some ongoing uh, Freedom Caucus drama, which you may or may not have heard about. Um, Before that, we, we are still in our drive month. So our sponsor continues to be, for this episode, TPM. The company that puts on this podcast. We are having, we are still having, we are in the, we're just finishing the third week of the TPM journalism fund drive for this year. Uh, we have a pretty ambitious and pretty necessary target goal this year. We are coming up on uh 80% of the way there. Uh, but we're, you know, we're in the final lap. So we need to actually get all the way. There, it's it's really important. So, uh, if you are if you're a reader of TPM, if you if you go to the website a lot, you've 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 heard me talking about it. You've seen all the promos on the site. Uh, if you've been putting it off, please you know make today the day that you uh, that you contribute. If you are if you're game, if you're just a a listener to the podcast and you don't know that much about TPM, first of all, I hope you consider becoming a member because uh, a it supports what we do on this podcast. But more generally... We've got a, a lot of good stuff over on the site, right? You hear Kate talking, she's got a lot of great articles. You're going to want to read those too, all the things that she's reporting on and all our other reporters and so on and so forth. But again, this drive is really important. So if if you're just a listener to the podcast, consider contributing. If uh if you're game, you can go to talkingpointsmemo.com and I could tell you specifically where to go, but if you just like make contact with the site, you're going to see promos and stuff like that and it'll 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 tell you where to sign up and all of that. So anyway, Kate, what's up? What are we talking about?
1: So we'll start with the big Supreme Court decision uh, that came down yesterday. Um, and it's funny because it's one that we were awaiting, was on kind of our short list of what we're watching here as we come to the end of the term. But we didn't actually know if we'd get an opinion on it. And that's um, Moore versus Harper, which is the independent state legislature theory case. Um there had been quite a delay since the court last asked for supplemental briefing, so it was pretty clear that someone was writing. Um, but a theory from a lot of people I talked to was that um, most people thought this case would be mooted for jurisdictional reasons because the underlying case um, has been overturned, and you know the, the whole hullabaloo there. Um, so everyone kind of thought that it would probably be a dismissal of the case, and then like someone was writing a dissent to that and that's probably what the gap was but we got a full-throated decision yesterday where the majority um pretty squarely rejected the independent state legislature theory which you know as a reminder is a, a super literal reading of two clauses of the constitution um to d- to conclude that state legislatures, to the exclusion of state courts, state constitutions, governor's veto, um, that just the legislators get to administer federal elections. And that's, you know, passing election laws, controlling redistricting processes, voting laws, all that kind of stuff.
0: And, um, and just to be clear that a dismissal in this case, because the underlying question sort of became moot, that they could just say, they could dismiss it and not have to say anything and not have to really judge anything. Like, oh, okay, nothing's... And so that that's that's the difference you're talking about, mm-hmm, as opposed exactly. to a full decision to decide the underlying issues.
1: Right. Um, and it's still kind of consensus. Like people are weirded out that they issued an opinion on this case because the jurisdictional stuff seemed pretty straightforward, that there's no live case or controversy for them uh, to respond to at this point. And that's what um, Thomas dissented. And the first third of his dissent is all about that jurisdictional stuff. Like this is mooted. Um, you know, it's not proper for a court to write an opinion um, on a case like this. And he was joined by Alito and Gorsuch. And then only in the in the kind of last part does he get into his meritsy stuff. But so basically the conclusion from everyone who's watching this is like, well, that's really weird that they did an opinion on it. However, good outcome. They rejected this really radical right-wing theory that sought to put all the power of administering elections and, you know, Getting together the elector slates and all that stuff sought to put it in the hands of state legislatures, which not coincidentally, um, in many red and and even purple states, you know, Republicans have gerrymandered themselves into like huge dominant control. Um, And, you know, that made a lot of people nervous that the court was going to accept the theory. Um, And then state legislatures would be totally empowered to kind of make a slate of fake electors should Trump lose in 2024. Um, So, They resoundedly, they rejected it pretty resoundingly. Barrett and Kavanaugh joined Roberts and the Liberals. So um, a 6-3 decision. And in the the immediate aftermath, if you've been following this, you might see like the super terminally online lawyer contingent of Twitter um, that have all kind of made a career from themselves for their Their constant tweeting. They've been like kind of fighting amongst each other about how good this decision is because there's a contingent of people who say there's some like hedging in the majority about um, when federal courts should get involved in these kind of state level election disputes. Like when have state courts gone too far afield of normal judicial review that it would trigger kind of a federal court intervention? That was a big uh, kind of wonky like back and forth where you can kind of see the pull from the right wing judges who are part of the majority in wanting to leave that door open. And basically everyone's like, OK, well, this is them not taking off the table a future bush v gore right a future situation where the court could kind of intervene and and take over in a case like this and so you have some experts being like this is bad we're gonna see more bush v gores in the future blah 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 which is like my response to that is okay but that was the status quo before this decision slash did we expect this court which has like three people who were actively involved in the Bush v. Gore litigation to close the door to a future one. Like, it got to be a little realistic here.
0: <laughs> well, it's also how I'm not even sure how they how how they would precisely since I mean, especially because Bush v. Gore was presented sort of ridiculously as like, this doesn't have anything to do with anything. So it's just time out. Like, we're just going to come in and do this. So but I mean, w- the how would they have had a decision that that would just be like you know we're not going to do weird stuff on elections or kind of like decide them anymore just just letting you know I mean how I don't even understand how that would yeah
1: they would have to have handed something down like you know this is the exclusive jurisdiction of state courts you know this isn't for federal courts to decide but like it... but
0: even that no one no one believes that that there's yeah that, it's that silly things can't get so crazy that that federal courts would would well let me ask you this is there. Is there a consensus or even theories on why they did issue a decision? If not only did they not have to, but maybe it wasn't even necessarily appropriate to, since there was no there was no issue before them?
1: Honestly, I think the biggest concern was that if they had said, like, this is moot, we're not deciding it now, almost a hundred percent would states do a mid 2024 litigation would put forward this theory again and kind of force their hand to decide it. So my best guess is that they were aware of the utter chaos that would come. So I guess of the two evils, they thought maybe issuing an opinion on a case that is not technically live now is better than waiting till we're in like the firestorm of the days after the election, um, which is interesting because that was kind of the primary argument in a bunch of these supplemental briefs in terms of the court kept being like, should we decide this now or no? Like, how do we act now that the underlying case has gotten so weird? And most people said, you don't have jurisdiction, don't decide this. But there was a, a coterie of people and not just right wing people like common cause kind of good government groups who were like this is going to keep coming up would rather have the decision now than um you know in the in the 2024 kind of flurry which has provoked its own internecine fight with the terminally online lawyer Twitter sect because um Neil cat Kat- how do you say it cat y'all
0: oh cat y'all yeah. I, I don't I, I'm not
1: Okay, that's how I Neil, say it,
0: but I don't know if that's right. He's gonna
1: commit. So Neil Cotial, um is getting like all these accolades because he did um, oral arguments for the anti-independence legislature side. But now he, it, I guess, is like squabbling with Mark Elias, the other big election lawyer guy, because uh, Neil is like everyone said that they didn't have jurisdiction. Like we stood alone and that's how we got this good decision and blah, blah, blah. Like the DOJ didn't have the guts, whatever. And it's kind of like, that's such a wild position to take because you can only take that victory lap if the Supreme Court rules in your favor, which we didn't know they were going to do. Like, I don't think people were being kind of like wimps by saying, let's maybe take this grenade out of the hands of the court, you know? Right,
0: right. I mean, it 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 seems to me that that explanation is the logical one, that that for a number of reasons, and I think this kind of coincides with my sort of broader theory, or the theory I subscribe to, it's not uniquely my theory, that they just said, we got to put this to bed. Like, this is nuts. And like, th- we're going to say no, this isn't, you know, we're, we're not even we're just putting this to bed. And, you know, because my, I I did a post about this this morning saying that I, I do think that there's a number of justices who kind of say, this backlash is serious. We're kind of out here a bit on a limb and we need to, you know, choose our shots basically. And that's why I I think and and you you and I talked about this yesterday. I think that they probably will do a pretty bad decision on affirmative action, because that's a core thing in the right wing legal world. They've been you know that has been something. What is it? Is it the Vallejo case back in the seven? I I, I may have the name wrong. There's a, a key. Uh, God, I can't remember the. In any case, a key 1970s era. Decision, which I think is still basically the guiding case law on affirmative action, that was the first case where the court basically said you can't just have quotas. That's not that's not okay. Sort of like hard quotas, basically. They need to be, and I'm just in a in a general sense, it can't be the only criteria. They can't be, you know, that numerical blah 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 blah. They've been at this for half a century. Um, in the same way that they were on abortion, in the same way that the court has long been uh, going back to the, in many ways, going back to the Lochner era, been wanted to rein in the government's ability to regulate commercial life. Um, But that on this kind of like, let's say, you know, gonzo jurisprudence, where it's like whatever some rando down in Texas comes up with on a a lark, maybe we're not going to keep you know agreeing to hear those cases and af- affirm those cuz that's just that's whacked and 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 we need to focus on the things that are really important to us and not just you know doing a lot of stuff that is uh that is nuts and is 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 losing us credibility i mean paradoxically clearly the thing that has really brought this to the to the fore is the dobbs decision for all the obvious reasons i mean the paradox is is that that is Th- those are not new theories, and they're not even entirely controversial theories in this sense. And listen to what I'm saying here. I'm not saying on the substance of, of abortion rights, but within the legal world, uh, privacy, right of privacy and stuff, that's, that, has, th- that has been contested ground for a long time. Dobbs is not something they just came up with, obviously, out of the blue, this has been sort of their holy grail forever, uh, but in any case, that's my that 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 makes sense to me that they just knew they had to kind of put this to bed, no matter what, even if it was iffy that they had uh you know a live issue to settle.
1: I've also discussed this before, but you really get the sense that Roberts, in particular, just like gets kind of mad when he's presented with half baked ideas, this kind of you know the thing of like a right wing lawyer concoct some kind of idea and then just uses the right wing pipeline to get it up to the Supreme Court. And I think he does still have a sense of like, this is hallowed ground, you know, don't kind of come here without doing your homework kind of thing. And just the independent state legislature theory, like presentation in this case was always just so half-assed and like, you know, for, for instance, like the whole premise of the idea is that the Constitution is saying the state legislature and the state legislature alone is in charge of administering elections. But then the North Carolina side is like, except governor's vetoes are fine because Supreme Court precedent is like a little more specific in that area and they didn't want to run afoul of that. So then you had the justices being like, well... <laughs> Why? You know, how does that make any sense? And, you know, I don't want to give them too much credit because obviously they have bought some cockamamie right wing stuff. But like, there is, I think, a sense of pushback when what they're presented with is just kind of transparently stupid and not even really thought through that much.
0: One thing that this isn't new and I guess it's kind of obvious, but it hadn't quite clicked to me in this way until I was thinking about it when I was writing Mm -hmm. something up last night. But if you believe this, if you believe this theory, you have to believe that the authors of every state constitution written since 1787, which includes a lot of state constitutions, right? All of them did not realize what the constitution actually said. They missed it. The folks writing them in 1790 and 1795 and 1800, they all missed the plain meaning of the constitution because otherwise they wouldn't have created these uh, frameworks of Election law in the context of the, the the whole thing is it's it it is one of the um, it is one of the many ways in which I, I think what I said in this in this uh, in this um, post was that it is it has a vague plausibility in grammatical terms it has no basis in any history anything about the past trying to figure out what they meant zero and in its effect it's simply absurd. The the idea that you were going to go in, overrule the state constitutions and say the whole framework you have of executive and legislative and judicial and all this kind of stuff. No.
1: Right. And then the the state constitutions created the state legislatures, not realizing that then they were cut out of the Equation for the body that derives its power from the Constitution. It
0: is. It is sort of like a Platonic ideal thing where they are. They are essentially saying, Constitution writers, you think you created the legislature, but actually, the legislator legislature existed before and superior to you. It was already there with all these powers that you have. It. It. It's simply. It's hard to. It's really hard to capture how just how off the deep end this is. It's the kind of thing that you know you always have gadflies who are coming up with ideas and kind of wacky stuff, and 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 uh, you know you've got you've got these you know constitutional sheriff type stuff, who stuff. They have this idea like, well, sheriffs exist. It, it's actually quite similar. It's actually quite similar because their idea is sheriffs. Exist sort of prior to the constitutional order, they are actually in charge within their county. Sheriffs are the law, and and like no, like like we don't have to have counties. Counties don't exist. The things that exist in our system are states. States are can't just be made to disappear. Counties, we don't. It it it, it's it's the whole thing is just absurd. And and I know I'm saying the same thing over and over again, but you know, well, and it's it's
1: it's so. I think the reason why it it infuriates kind of the academics and historians so much is because like, if you isolate lines in the constitution, I mean, you could kind of make this argument all over the place. You know, it's like the commerce clause solely empowers Congress to, to legislate on commerce, but nobody reads that to say, and thus the president can't veto any commerce related laws. You know, it's just nowhere else is there this... A theory that like one sentence chews away everything else because it's not like really caveated. Anyway, the whole thing, it was silly. It was pretty resoundingly rejected. I think that these lawyers who are being like, well, it, it doesn't avert any problems in the future is like, yeah, no kidding guys. Like I don't think anyone saw this decision and was like, who we're saved. You know, the court's never gonna do anything shitty like again. So we can just rest easy.
0: Um, Although I, w- I would say I 100% agree with you, but I think in a in a more general sense, along with the voting rights redistricting decision, it does suggest at least some hesitation the court has in pushing what has um, been a pretty anything goes, you know, anything goes that gets the GOP a couple more percentage points. Let's do it kind of thing i you know there's also this um you're gonna know more of the particulars about this but kind of rattling around uh the right-wing judicial world for the last few years they've wanted to what uh basically that apportionment is will only be on the basis of citizens as opposed to residents um and not just not just apportionment but um basically if if i'm remembering this right so the idea would be texas gets all of its um i think they still get all of their electoral votes and all of their representatives but they but the districts just get written basically for the rural places because you, immigrants tend not to be in rural areas obviously there're lots of immigrants in rural areas but statistically they're they they cluster in cities so you know these things just to just things that are foreclosed, outlawed by the plain text of the constitution. The constitution is really clear that it says residents. It, it says the people there. It doesn't matter what they, citizens, legal, not legal, the amount of people, um, but just another way to kind of lock in Republican dominance. And that was kind of out there, kind of along, sort of comparably to um, this independent legislature thing of just another ridiculous idea that maybe in not too long, you're going to have the Supreme Court say, yeah, cool, let's do it. But I think there's some reason to think maybe, okay, a little less, a little less openness to that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. And so this, the independent state legislature theory decision came on the heels of two more um, surprisingly good Supreme Court decisions, one more so than the other. And that one is basically DHS put out guidelines for their kind of border patrol forces saying, here are the undocumented immigrants we're going to kind of target for, um, you know, arrest and removal. The idea being there aren't the resources or the manpower to arrest everyone who's crossing into the country illegally. So, you know, let's kind of focus our firepower on, you know, they're broad categories, but things like people suspected of terrorism, you know, basically trying to go Seems after like reasonable Right. People who are more more of a risk. Um, And so Texas and Louisiana sued uh, because they said that that guidance might, in a downstream way, if DHS is arresting fewer people, which again, that's not what the guideline said. That doesn't say they're arresting fewer people. It's just shifting who they're prioritizing to arrest. But Texas and Louisiana are saying, You're going to arrest fewer people, and that means our states are going to incur the costs of detaining more people or providing them with social services or health care or what have you. And that's the injury that they claimed to file the lawsuit. Which people were freaked out about because that is such an indirect injury. And basically, like every federal government action could have some potential monetary effect somewhere down the line. And if that's enough for standing, then red states are going to sue the federal government for anything that it does, you know. So uh, that one really summarily knocked down um, in a bit of a surprise because this is a court that has been so hostile to executive branch agencies exercising even power that there's been a lot of precedent that they they have and there and that's nowhere is that more true than with law enforcement discretion. That's something that courts pretty much always just give agencies wide latitude with because it's so I mean, how are you gonna kind of judge that? That's such a, a slippery slope. Um so you know kind of resounding win for the Biden administration there.
0: And what was the vote on that one?
1: Yeah. So um a pretty kind of heavy win the Kind of clean majority is Kavanaugh, Roberts, and the liberals. But then uh, Gorsuch did a concurring opinion that Thomas and Barrett joined, and Barrett wrote a concurrence that Gorsuch joined. So Alito was the only one who kind of flatly dissented there, um, and his dissent it, it was just so—it's so classic Alito that you know he kind of puts his sympathy with. The red state is here. And he's like, they're already bearing such a burden. And now we're making things even more difficult for them. You know, it's like you would never catch Alito sparing an ounce of sympathy for, you know, the people who are fleeing violence or poverty or whatever. Well, but-
0: it's all, you know, bes- beyond the the merits of the individual case, you know, you could imagine a different, uh, a different under specific issue in which one might feel you know more sympathy with the states but you basically can't have a federal government if you if you go down this path these are inherently political questions um you know the standard way to look at this is this is a political question if it's so bad send different representatives to congress to change the law or elect a different president and i don't know the specific case law and jurisprudence about exactly this question but the the court has generally said either it's totally off limits, it's just nothing, you know, it's not in our purview at all, or it has to be sort of facially absurd or usually, you know, ira- you know unreasonable, a reasonability test. And clearly this is not unreasonable, but it, it's it's funny because it's certainly true that the court has with a certain consistency been against agency decision making but on stuff like this although the decision came down differently it's really they're against this kind of stuff when it's a democrat totally and and that is again the and we you know we saw that to a great degree, with the Obamacare Medicaid expansion stuff, um, we got pretty close to it on the case, the name of which I forget, uh, way back in I guess it was maybe 2015. I don't remember exactly. Maybe it was earlier. You know, the big Obamacare case that that John Roberts basically saved, uh, where you just, you know, you just hobble. Democratic administrations on what they can do. So anyway,
1: right. So uh, that one, and then the one that was a bit less surprising, but basically, uh, Louisiana is trying to fight a lower case, a lower court order instructing it to redraw its congressional maps because um, the state so like diluted its black voters that uh, in kind of classic. Um, a rates dilution case. And that case was put on hold while the Supreme Court was deciding the Alabama one that we talked about, I think, last episode, maybe a couple episodes ago. And so uh, the court just kind of rejected Louisiana's old pending emergency appeal to try to not have to redraw its maps, you know, to try to kind of scoot right up to the Supreme Court um, and get a more favorable decision. So they sent that back down to the lower courts, which is kind of the the ripple effect from the big VRA case. And Louisiana is one of the big states that experts pointed to as probably ultimately going to have to draw another black opportunity district uh, and seat there. Got it. So that's our, okay. our lengthy Louisiana era. Uh, Supreme Court corner. Um, So there's a couple other things we wanted to kind of briefly talk about. And one of them is this tape of Trump talking to a group that had come to Mar-a-Lago because um, some people involved are, are writing a biography of Mark Meadows. And we knew of the existence of this conversation from the indictment because a lot of it's contained in there. But then CNN obtained the actual recording of Trump talking to these people and like flaunting, uh, you know, an, att- an attack plan uh, against Iran. And it's just, in some ways, I I found it very kind of vindicating of the way we've been thinking about Trump's uh, holding on to these documents, because it's so like there's that one there's one part where he just says, like, oh, it's so cool, isn't it? Like, can you believe I actually have these, you know, so like Bravado-y, which I mean is a word he used to describe it later.
0: Yeah. yeah. I, well, you know, it, there's also a kind of a golem-y sort of element to <laughs> yeah. it because you kind of imagine that when he's feeling like like hurt or or scared, he might just like rub the documents, right, to get his his power back or something yeah. like that. Um and and the thing that struck me, I mean, if you haven't if you haven't heard this recording, it's worth just Googling, going to CNN, whatever, and listening because, as Kate said, the the gist of it and some of the direct quotes were in the indictment. So we've known about this, but as as is so often the case, actually hearing it just it's it's not the same to see the to see the transcription. It, it it's it's quite something. But the thing that really strikes me, and again, um, I I think it's what he's talking. But the reason he brings this up is he is still. Um, angry that Millie uh said at one point after all the January sixth you know um, last weeks of the administration' stuff trying to overturn the election that he was that he was afraid that Trump was going to try to launch a war against Iran as sort of a distraction to hold on to power whatever okay so. He's still angry about this. And Trump thinks that this vindicates him because there's this war plan so, uh, that, that Millie brought him. Ergo, I didn't want to start a war. Millie wanted to start a war. Well, first of all, this is an absurd inference or thing to think because the U.S. government has extensive and detailed war plans for wars against all sorts of countries, not just the obvious ones even some friendly countries everybody that's just what pentagon's do that's what general staffs do you do it cuz you want to be prepared but also because you're a general staff what else are you going to do like come up with food recipes so the point is the fact that this plan existed is meaningless it doesn't prove anything but in i think it doesn't he in the actual recording said it kind of proves my case yeah. <laughs> that's one of, okay but so the thing is what case there's no case but in his mind, he's still in this battle of wills with Millie about uh, about who wanted to go to war with Iran. And even though his premise is, um, is absurd, clearly he thinks that he's holding this over Millie. Kind of like, oh no, I got the secret documents. You know, I got the I I I I got the goods. I'm going to bring down the hammer on you and uh you know, I may or may not that that is and I that is what he's holding on to these documents about. And that doesn't exonerate him because having them means maybe I could show them to the Saudis or maybe I could do this or maybe I could do that. We, we we've we've seen with Trump there are all those times where He will either do or threaten to do X. And he's not allowed to do X. And he gets asked about it. And he said, Oh, I didn't do X. Of course, I'm totally within my rights to do X. And everybody agrees I can do X. And I might do X, but I didn't do X. You know, the same Trump razzmatazz, mind fucking gaslighting, all that kind of stuff. But you can see it's basically I could or I couldn't. Be nice to me. I can do what I want and so these documents are just another thing of that and again that's not saying he wouldn't give them to some foreign government he might but it's more his ability to and the people know he still has juice and you can in this in this tape you can kind of you can you can just feel it him saying oh look at these documents aren't they cool you know I could uh you know this is the proof Poor Millie, he hates that I have these because I could just show him. Oh, it just—it just gives you a feel for him. just what a what a what a feral, ridiculous little man. There's just, there's kind of no other way to put it.
1: It's funny because now his. I mean, it's classic Trump, but like his defenses have already been scattered. But now they're just like so ludicrous. You know, he'll be like Sean Hannity was the first one who asked him about the recording when its existence kind of became known. Um, and Trump was like, no, I, I haven't seen it. Haven't don't know anything about it. And then, you know, a few phrases later, he's talking about how you can hear the rustle of the paper on the clip. And he's trying to use that as evidence, question mark, that, you know, these are just news articles and photos and whatever. Um, so he can't even, have you heard the clip or have you not, you know? And then he switches into this, um, the bravado quote where he's like, oh, you know, I think I was just kind of like showing off, essentially, you know, these, these weren't real documents, blah, blah, blah. But it's just like really shooting from the hip now because, You know, it's one thing to kind of have your game plan be the indictment is bullshit. The indictment is a political witch hunt. Everything in it is false. And then you have uh, the audio come out, which both kind of undergirds what was in the indictment and makes it a hell of a lot harder to be like, well, that's just a fabrication by evil Jack Smith, you know?
0: (laughs) Well, it's it's also, you know, because it's important for us to remember that it's not impossible that he just had some like, you know, blank computer paper or some printouts of uh, Newsmax or something like that, that he was like rustling around and stuff like that. But it's important to remember that in a trial context, the, the, the issue is you had the documents. We asked for the documents. You refused. Then you hid them. Then you said you gave them back when you didn't. Then you hid them again. Then you had your butler move them to the bathroom, all this kind of stuff. And here we have a tape of you're saying, yeah, I have them. I shouldn't have them. Uh, They're super classified, but I'm going to show them to you. And in that context, since it all fits together, right? You're like, oh, maybe just this one time he didn't actually had them and he was pretending he had them because he totally didn't have them you know and it's it's sort of like preponderance of evidence not that preponderance of evidence is the standard but like it all fits together and so (laughs) you know he's (laughs) he's so guilty as sin that it is uh, obviously when when you're a president and everybody's got strong feelings about you. Everyone in the country has strong feelings about you. There's not going to be anybody they find to impanel. It's like, oh, I never, even, I never even noticed he was president. It's, it's inevitably kind of different, but it is worth coming back to, you know, in any other universe, the evidence is just so overwhelming. And the weird thing about this tape is that the tape is almost divide. It's almost as if the things he said were calculated to knock down every conceivable defense. Because he says, he, one of the defense is, they're mine. What are you talking about? I, these are mine. So what are we, what, what's even going on here? Or I didn't know they were classified. Or they weren't classified because I, I declassified them in my mind um, and all these all these kind of things and and in the, in the, in the recording he basically says you know super cool these are super classified and then he says too bad I wish I could declassify them but I'm not president anymore I can't do that and you're just sort of like check 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 you're you're going down the list of defenses and he's knocking every single one down it's almost like you know in the age of ai you'd almost wonder like did jack smith just just ai this right (laughs) because it's so perfect you almost can't believe it but
1: it's like the perpetual tweet uh of the trump era which is always you know in response to like Marjorie Taylor Greene or whatever saying, you know, if they can do this to him, imagine what they'll do to you. And then someone always responds something like, Wow, really good point. You know, the next time I do my crimes in public on a recording, I'm really going to think twice. You know, <laughs> um,
0: exactly, exactly. So,
1: and and speaking of MTG, we wanted to kind of end with a little uh, shot in Freudy corner here, which is called the House Freedom Caucus, kind of ripping itself apart. Um, our readers, I'm sure, are going to remember that our listeners rather that last week MTG was caught calling Lauren Boebert a little bitch on the House floor because Boebert had introduced her own articles of impeachment against Biden rather than signing on to MTGs, which we'll all remember, I believe she filed, what, the day after he was inaugurated? Maybe day of. <laughs>
0: right, 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 right.
1: Um, And that has since seemed to be kind of a Backbreaking straw because on Friday, the House Freedom Caucus took kind of an informal vote about booting Marjorie Taylor Greene from its ranks. And while it seems that that vote showed there was enough support to get rid of her, um, it hasn't yet been acted upon. I think partially because the caucus hasn't booted anyone before, um, and there's still some contention over that. But basically, you know, th- it's funny because. You see all this and you're like, "Okay, what are they fighting about?" And it's kind of well, do, do they have
0: do they have even a nominal issue? Like what? I mean, I I think here isn't it that Kevin McCarthy basically appointed Marjorie Green as his freak warden in the Freedom Caucus to keep those people in line and she has I would say relatively deftly remain totally crazy but also kind of kept people from putting McCarthy in too big a too big a jam you know during the debt ceiling thing she was kind of like oh this is a tough tough pill to swallow but we are cutting some big time government back and i'll have to see but it would certainly be wrong for anybody to attack kevin all the, all this kind of stuff and uh even though she was sort of in this you know, I shouldn't go there, but look, it's, it's just so real housewives, right? Like every meme from that show, you could just use about this with the, with the, with the ridiculous fighting and the drama and everything. Uh, on the surface, she was, and yes, you can send your, send your disappointed emails to talk at talkingpointsmemo.com and say how Josh has let you down. Um, like on the surface she's saying, oh, you stole my impeachment. But clearly this is also part of McCarthy's desire to like, dude, let's not, can we not impeach Biden like right now? Kind of. So she's still trying to play that freak warden thing. And isn't that I mean, that seems basically what they're upset about, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, what they're saying is that they are trying to purge the committee of inactive members and kind of rhino members, you know, House (laughs) Freedom Caucus and name only people. Right,
0: right. But yeah,
1: I mean, it's clear she's taking the brunt because she has taken kind of the Jim Jordan route of... Crazy to ingratiating yourself with leadership so you can get it like nice committee spots and, and yep. stuff like that. You know, it kind of it, it does pay to be tight with the establishment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think in that position, she is also occasionally like, you know, bad talk to the House Freedom people or, or said they're being unreasonable about various things where they're at odds with McCarthy. And I think, you know, they're, time to purge the disloyal member right (laughs)
0: well the thing is too is just just for our listeners like generally speaking these like originally i remember when they first started the the house freedom caucus and they were like they were like secretly meeting in this uh tortilla flats place up on capitol hill or something The, the point is it's not like kicking someone off a committee Right, where that's kind of like okay, we're going to take away that vote. We're going to take away your committee assignments. They're just kind of clubs, right? It's it's kind of like um, if you're in a high school clique of like you know the stoners or the D and D nerds, and if the stoners got together, we're going to expel you from the stoners. You know, it just these things are not so. They're really not so structured that people get expelled. That's just kind of not how it works generally. Um, so. I I don't think at least that it's really like um, just that they've never expelled someone like people don't expel anyone. I mean, I remember it was it wasn't it uh, didn't Justin Amash before he like got basically kicked out of Congress. He like left the Freedom Caucus because he was you know, they were so pro-Trump and, you know, good for him. He ended up. you know, sacrificed his career over something pretty important, or at least his time in Congress. Uh, but yeah, it's it's just it's just weird. And certainly there are, what there, I think there's a good forty plus people in there. It's it's not like she's not like a contender in the craziness department, right? I mean, it's not just Matt Gates and like Biggs and whoever else. You know, the the kind of the hardcore people who actually like vote against mccarthy mm-hmm. for speaker and stuff so um it, but isn't i thought i heard that they're they're gonna hold like the vote on friday or is that was that just an idea or is that like is that locked in maybe maybe it was yeah, just a sure. of a,
1: yeah i guess we'll see yeah they're also like not super talking in public about it so most of what we're we're getting you know is kind of second hand but um I don't know. It's funny because this is such like a a resistance lib thing to say, but watching how this has gone, it just really... Nancy Pelosi simply does not get the respect that she deserves (laughs) because, I mean, can you imagine like any... The kind of dustups that the House Democrats had were, you know, covered like breathlessly and there was constant attempts by kind of the Beltway press to craft stories that kind of pitted the reasonable centrist against the shrill, uh, Childish progressives who just don't have an understanding of how government works. You know, like that was con, they were trying to use that framework all the time. And still, the reality often just didn't fit into it because Pelosi had like a cracked whip over her caucus and everyone pretty much acted in lockstep for most of the time. Um, and when there was little moments of kind of like, blah, 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 you know, it's mostly like Josh Gottheimer being like, well, Mansion's getting all the attention and I want some, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Compared to this shit show, it's just it's it is night and day.
0: Yeah. I mean, some of it is just, you know, Democratic Party is a different party or rather this Republican Party is a different party. I mean, this is a kind of like a level of clown show that you just don't really see any anything comparable to in anything e- even on the i was going to say recent history but i mean recent history in the last like century or something like that but but it's also true and it's interesting i'm actually um i'm reading a uh, a book about you know cent- centrists versus progressives in the sense that that You know, Pelosi and Biden are centrists, even though I'm not even sure what that means and how the two sides were able to really kind of basically maintain a united front through the Trump administration and into the Biden administration. It's really interesting stuff. Um, But certainly, I mean, this is why Nancy Pelosi is the best and most successful legislative leader in any of our lifetimes and when i see any of i mean if you're 80 you too right that doesn't mean she has the best policies necessarily or that you have to like her but being a legislative leader is a certain skill set of managing a a a legislative party um and some of that's carrots and some of that sticks um and keeping everybody you know um on side and just just amazingly successful. And, you know, we mentioned, um, we mentioned Obamacare uh, a little earlier in this episode in the context of, you know, Supreme court stuff. But, um, I, I will never, I will never forget that night that, um, what was the guy's name? That Republican Senator from Massachusetts, Scott, God, what is his name? the guy who basically ended up replacing Ted Kennedy, whose name escapes me at the moment, and who Elizabeth Warren eventually beat. In any case, that was a special election that took the Democrats from 60 um, Senate seats to 59, which was critical for the passage of Obamacare. And I will never forget that night, a a lot of Democrats just went wobbly. And Barney Frank, Barney Frank of all people put out a statement that night, like, oh, tsk, womp, womp, womp." I guess we're not going to get Obamacare. Oh, too bad. Law, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, I remember thinking, like, dude, what? Are, like, really? Like you of all people? Like you are kind of giving up that way. And the next day, I'm not. I don't think it was a statement. I think it was basically. Leaked what she said in a Democrat House Democratic Caucus meeting um, the next day, and remember, this is when she's still Speaker. You know, first for her first time as Speaker. Basically, it's this great line, kind of like, "We're going to go through the wall, and if we can't go through the wall, we're going to, you know, we're going to catapult over the wall, and if we can't catapult over the wall, we're going to, we're going to dig under the like. We are going to get this done, no matter what. We are not giving this up, and. As a lot of you remember, what ended up happening is the only way to do that was basically the House had to accept the Senate's version because that was the only because, you know, the 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 Senate had already voted on it. So they had that option. They couldn't get it through the Senate again because they only had 59 seats. Um, and that required Pelosi going to A, herself, but really almost everybody in the House saying, yeah, it sucks. We wanted to negotiate this and we wanted to push it further to more coverage further to the left whatever you want to put it but that ship has sailed and this is what we have to do and you are all going to do it and they did do it and that is why we have obamacare um and you know just uh no one like her even even compared to like you know LBJ Sam Rayburn types no one compares there's no other way to put it
1: also this is a delayed help but scott brown was the scott name brown for before. yes
0: yes yes scott <laughs> brown well you know let's just say a forgettable character <laughs> i think is the is the, is the is the is the is the is the best way to put it um but yeah all right so i guess all that's right. is that pretty much all we got for for yep. uh for this week um remember uh sponsor is tpm we are coming into the last week of our drive for the tpm journalism fund if you've been thinking about it If you've been delaying it, uh, try to make, when you hear this podcast, the day you uh, contribute, because we're really pushing to kind of end this with a big success. It's important to the whole organization uh, this year into next year. So... uh, TPM journalism fun drive uh, either if you're if you if you uh, hang out at the website great uh, just click one of the links if you don't if you're just a podcast person go to talkingpointsmemo.com and you know you'll see promos for it uh, just click around uh, and that is um, that's it for this All week
1: right. see you next week later